All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we'll be reading, I was going to read the first five verses, but let's read up to verse 8. So we'll read the first eight verses of the book of Acts. All right, beautiful. You know, is it possible to put it on this side? All right, so Acts chapter 1, and we'll read the first eight verses. And I usually always have the mic on this side, so I'm a person of habit. So let's keep it on that side. And before I read this passage, let me open up in a quick word of prayer. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time together, because without God's Holy Spirit, there is not just little understanding, there's no understanding. So what we need more than anything else is the Spirit of God to touch our hearts, to quicken our minds and our hearts so that we would not only understand, but that these words would resonate in our hearts and take root and that we would believe in them, that we would take steps of faith and be people who take risks based upon God's Word. And then and only then do we experience the full flowering and the full power of God's Word. So it's so important that we begin in a word of prayer and let's truly ask God to bless our time together. Gracious Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit that searches the depth of God communicate truth to us, and we pray that our knowledge would not just be head knowledge, but also an experiential knowledge, so that this knowledge, Lord God, would take root in our hearts and bear uh, a harvest, even a hundredfold. We pray that the preaching of your word would affect our lives and change it, so that it would resemble Christ and the reality of his kingdom more and more. So we pray, Lord God, that you would take our hearts, mold it and make it. We give this time to you, and we invite the Spirit of God to be part of our community and to be the one who leads us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 1 will be the first eight verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taking up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, <clears throat> in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Really amazing words, an amazing promise that God gives to um, his people. Let me say it is um, a great privilege and joy for me to be here uh, to share God's word with you. I was uh, looking forward to the next time that God opened the door for me to visit uh, Good News Church to share um, God's word. 
and to break bread together and just spend time together. Uh, time here is always uh, very special uh, in my heart. And as I began to think and pray about what to share, uh, I think I knew pretty quickly what I wanted to share, but I didn't really decide upon a text because what I'm going to share today can be preached through many different texts, and that's why there was a little bit of a delay getting the title as well as the text to uh, Dennis and Fred. I sent it last night. Uh, so it was the last, it was, I waited till the end, but I knew in my heart what I wanted to speak. And what I want to speak about is the kingdom of God. And you heard about the kingdom of God often. And in fact, if you read the Bible from the New Testament all the way to the end, you can't help but really emphasize on this understanding of the kingdom of God. But sometimes when we read something uh, so many times and it becomes so familiar to us, we kind of forget the power of it. And we forget how it applies to our lives. So what I really want to do is to focus on this understanding of the kingdom of God. And if you look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, the idea of the kingdom of God is actually embedded in this text in a profound way. Because according to Theophilus, the per, uh, according to Luke, who's writing to Theophilus, um, Luke is saying that after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, before he ascended into heaven, he was on earth for 40 days. And in those 40 days, he showed them many convincing proofs of his resurrection. And we read about some of this. So for example, if you look at the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus appeared to someone like Doubting Thomas and says, hey, Thomas, you know, put your finger on my side and see the nail holes and feel it. It is really me. I have conquered the grave. I am the resurrected Lord. And the things which I said have been corroborated in this resurrection. Or if you go to the end of uh, the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is at the Sea of Tiberias, and he tells these fishermen, Peter being among them, cast your net onto the right side, and Peter and the other apostles cast their net, and they catch 153 pieces of fish, and the nets are about to, to break because the catch is so miraculous and so large. And at that time, uh, Peter puts on his garment. I don't know why he puts on his garment. He jumps into the river, and he goes to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his condescending love, what does he have? He has a charcoal fire going on, and he's cooking some fish. So he's going to provide for those he loves, and he's convincing them. And in this case, with Peter, reinstating Peter and healing him because the Apostle Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. So for those 40 days, many convincing proofs, just like Luke says right in the beginning of the book of Acts. Then Luke goes on to say he did something else. And what he did was for those 40 days, he gave a content, right? What is that content? That body of knowledge was really emphasizing teachings on the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, right in the beginning of the Gospels, what is John the Baptist doing? John the Baptist, right from the beginning, he says, repent. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. To put it another way, the king is here. He has been born. He's going to begin his ministry. And when the Spirit of God came down upon Jesus during his baptism, the heavens were torn open and you heard the voice of God, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He receives the spirit without measure, that is Jesus, and he begins 
to demonstrate the reality and the power of the kingdom of God. And everything that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, what is it underlining? It's underlining the fact that the kingdom of God is here. The reality of the kingdom of God is a present reality in the ministry of Jesus. And even after he is resurrected from the dead for those 40 days, what is he doing? It says very clearly here in the book of Acts, he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus knows he only has 40 days. So he's going to impart that which is crucial. He's going to teach on those things which they absolutely need to understand. And therefore, what do they need to understand? They need to understand the principles of the kingdom of God. What do we need today in 2018? I submit to you, we need the same exact thing. We need to understand the kingdom of God. When you do a biblical theological sweep of the whole entire Bible, I will go on record to say that the most important theme in the Bible is the kingdom of God. Right in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates all things. And by Genesis chapter 2, the people who are ruling and subduing, naming, classifying is Adam and Eve. And if they are the ones who are classifying and naming all of these things, in a sense, they are the king and queen of this domain, which means God created humanity for a destiny of kingship. But you all know what happened. Adam and Eve fell, and this is why when the New Testament takes up that thread once again, it's the new Adam. And who is the new Adam? The new Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the new Adam succeeds in all those places where the first Adam failed, thereby sealing and demonstrating that he is the ultimate king. He is that final king. He is that eschatological king. That's Jesus. And John says that too. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. That's what Jesus is doing after his resurrection. He's showing his disciples. He's showing his followers, hey, I want you to know all those things which I said have not been abrogated because of my death. No, they've been confirmed because of the resurrection. And if anything is here, it is the kingdom of God. And as we go back to the Old Testament and we follow that sweep and that flow of redemptive history, we find that God is still gracious. Yeah, Adam failed, but at the same time, he makes this grand promise to, to Abraham. And that promise is one of land. It's fulfilled initially through Joshua. Joshua goes and crosses the Jordan River, and he begins to, to conquer, but it comes to a significant, a significant fulfillment in King David because the Bible says that David, as the king, the paradigmatic king, has peace on all sides. So not only is he enjoying the land which was promised during Abraham's time, he has peace. God is been fulfilling his promises. And who is David? He is the great king. But you again know how that story ends. Kings fail. David himself, who is Israel's greatest king, he fails. There are great reformers that come after, like Hezekiah and Josiah, but then there are also kings who are like Manasseh, where there's 52 years of ungodly rule, and in the end, the final king of Israel, his eyes are plucked out and gouged out, and he's brought into exile, 
spiritually and symbolically speaking, that even the kings have become dull. They've become, more pointed, spiritually blind as it is seen in their physical gouging out of their eyes. They're not able to see that which is right before the sight of God. So those kings fail too. And what happens? There's 400 years of silence. It's the intertestamental period. But the first voice that calls out in the wilderness is what? Make way and repent. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. God is not finished. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to rule. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, friends, is not some physical reality. It's a spiritual reality that will ultimately be physical when the Lord Jesus comes back and consummates that kingdom. But right now, I think we can say, and theologians spent a couple of thousand years trying to figure this out, and they were not very good at it until probably the last couple of hundred years. And we can say that the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. The kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And we see that bear out in the Gospels very clear. Let me give you a couple of examples. And I think the easiest place to go to see this is uh, the Gospel of Mark and parts of the Gospel of Luke. But in any Gospel, you can see this point fleshed out. Right from the beginning, chapter 1 of Mark, what happens? There is this declaration. There is one who's wearing camel's garments, this, this leather, and he's eating wild locusts and honey. This is John the Baptist, of course, and he is this voice crying out in the wilderness, and what is this voice saying? Repent, because the kingdom of God is here. As soon as he says that, who comes onto the scene? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus comes onto the scene, and what does he do? The first act that he does, he shows the rule and reign of God by doing what? Driving out a demon. Now, that's significant. Why, why does Jesus immediately drive out a demon? He drives out a demon because he is demonstrating beyond the shadow of doubt that the power of the kingdom of God is here. The rule and reign of God is here, and therefore he drives out this unclean spirit thereby proving through actions that the reality of the kingdom of God is here. And the next thing he does, he begins to heal all these people. And why does he heal all these people? And included in that is something, maybe something small, like Simon Peter's mother, who has a fever, that's healed. There is a leper right after that, that leper is healed. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, there's a paralytic man, that person is healed as well. So why does Mark mention all of these things as soon as there is a declaration that the kingdom of God is here? Because he's trying to show that the rule and reign of God is a present reality because the king is here. If the king is here, then his rule must be here. If the king is here, his reign must be here. If the king is here, those things of the kingdom must break into our world. There is no paralytic people in heaven, and therefore that has broken in. There's no fevers in heaven, and therefore that healing has been broken in. There's no unclean spirits in heaven. And therefore, Jesus shows very clearly that the kingdom of God is here. <clears throat> in fact, every 
chapter, except for chapters 12 to 15, because it's basically a narrative of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, this pattern continues. What are we supposed to make of it? I mean, the only thing that we can say is that when the gospel writers are writing, they're serious about the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God is a reality for our world. Now, <coughs> let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke is probably one of the best places to go to see this principle at work. If you look at Luke chapter 11, verse 20, there is some sort of controversy going on. Jesus is performing miracles, he's driving out demons, and some people have the, the arrogance and the skepticism to say, well, Jesus is actually doing this not by the power of God, but Jesus is actually doing this by the power of the prince of demons, Bezalbub. Then Jesus goes on to say, you know what? If I cast out these demons by the finger of God, then I want you to know something. What I want you to know is that the kingdom of God is upon you. So right there, very clear, Jesus is even saying, recorded in the Gospel of Luke, that all the things that the people are seeing in the life of Jesus is evidence of the power of the kingdom of God. Are you guys with me? You guys understand that? Everything that Jesus is doing is underlining the reality of the power of the kingdom of God. In fact, if we come at this from a different angle, we can make the same point. Uh, the word good news, and uh, this is Good News Church, the Greek word is euangelion. And you might be wondering, well, how was that word understood? What's the connotation of a word in the ancient world? Because it's an ancient word. Euangelion is basically the declaration of a birth of a new king. So even embedded in the word good news is the idea of the kingdom of God. And no wonder the Romans took that theme of the good news to promulgate their leaders. Why? Because they want to show people there is good news because today a new emperor has been born. And likewise, we see even in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is born, it is good news. All right? And the angels are, are singing of this good news because they're in chorus praising God for the birth of a king. And no wonder Herod is so incredibly threatened because he's the king of the Jews. He does not want any rival king. He does not want the good news because that good news speaks of a birth of a king. So what's my first point that I'm trying to impress upon all of us? The first point I want to impress upon you is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. That's the already, what theologians speak of. Has it been consummated? Not yet but it has been already inaugurated. And therefore, we live in this tension between the already not yet, and if we, I believe, are faithful to the New Testament, then the dominant accent falls upon not the not yet, but the already. The reality of the kingdom of God should be more and more, in other words, our reality. We ought to be living in the rule and reign of God. We ought to be living in this already. I think that's what Jesus is communicating to his apostles um, after his resurrection. 
as it says very clearly here, uh, he's uh, told them not to leave. And in those 40 days, he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. Because if they're going to be the people that God wants them to be, if they're going to finish the mission that God has entrusted to them, they need to understand the power of the kingdom, and they need to operate by the power of kingdom. And therefore, the imperative that God gives to them in this passage is wait. The first message is not one to go. Uh, the first message is to wait. And I think there is spiritual insight there. Sometimes we, especially in New York, need to wait and not go. We can't just be so busy to do. Uh, we need to wait upon God to be filled with more and more of who he is so that we can actually go and do. And so likewise, in this passage, there is this call to wait. Wait for what? Wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, when the Spirit of God will come and fill people, and the people will become the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is truly a seismic transformation and shift within this context, because the people that Jesus is writing to are good temple people, and they know good temple theology, and within that framework, uh, God dwells in the temple. So we can say from a a fancy theological point of view, the temple in the Old Testament is the abode of God, and therefore it is the incarnation of God, theologically speaking, in the Old Testament, because God takes his abode there. Remember Solomon's temple? The Shekinah glory cloud came down. The people were incapacitated, and the only thing that the people can do was fall down prostrate and worship God for who he is. Why? Because God's presence was so thick and powerful there. All of that really showed that God dwells in his temple. Uh, we see that even in the wilderness before, in, the, in the, uh, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, because that too prefigured the idea of the temple, and God was there. And this is why it was a moving village. When God moved, they moved. When God stopped, they stopped. They were keeping in step with the presence of God, with that Shekinah glory cloud hovering over them. So what uh, Acts is teaching us here, you know, there's going to be a seismic transformation. There's going to be this shift. And that shift is the people are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God no longer dwells in edifices made with human hands, but the Spirit of God is going to be dwelling in people. And if the Spirit of God is dwelling in people, then the kingdom of God has truly come, not just into our world, into the lives of individuals. And if the kingdom of God has come into the lives of individuals, then we too will be able to be agents of the kingdom in the world today. And this is exactly why Luke says, don't go anywhere, wait. Because if they're going to do what God calls them to do, they will only be able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why there are tongues of fire over the people's heads, signifying that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time to go into the theology of that, but take my word for it. The fire over the people's head really do, really does rather, uh, symbolize the fact that they are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we see juxtaposed on Pentecost a lifeless temple, an edifice made with human hands that is void of the Spirit of God, and you have ordinary people who are transformed into the temple of God as they have the Spirit of God. And as soon as that happens, it is explosive. Just like 
when Jesus is baptized, it is explosive. Baptism there, baptism here, Holy Spirit there, Holy Spirit here, Spirit without measure, Spirit of the, of the living God upon the people of God. And what happens? The church begins to swell. Thousands of people are cut to the heart and they say at the top of their lungs, what must we do to be saved? They repent. How could they repent? Because the Spirit of God leads people to repentance because they convict them of their sins. And what happens? What must we do to be saved? It's explosive. Thousands of people come. Generosity is poured out. So much generosity. People are selling their possessions and taking the proceeds, 100% of it, and giving it to the apostles' feet. Why? Because that population has swelled. There's needs, and all of those needs are met. How is this possible? It's possible because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says right here in Acts chapter 1. The Spirit of God has fallen upon the people, and the principle and the power of the kingdom of God is made alive in the book of Acts. Then what happens? There are healings that take place just like the ministry in, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So people who are cripples, they begin to leap in the temple courts, because they are healed. The blind begin to see, and it seems like we're just reading the Gospels all over again. And in a sense, we are because both the Gospels and the book of Acts are talking about the reality of the kingdom of God. And we begin to see signs and wonders and miracles. We begin to see Ethiopians come to the Lord, Ethiopian eunuchs. I mean, which is really just amazing because in the Old Testament, you have to be perfect to approach God, and therefore a eunuch cannot be in the assembly of God. And not only that, he's not just a Gentile, he's an Ethiopian eunuch, someplace from far off, and yet God engrafts that person into his family because the kingdom of God is expansive. Not only that, we see heroic martyrdoms. So someone like Stephen, who is a deacon, he's being stoned to death. He sees heaven opened up, and he sees a vision of Jesus standing on the right hand of God, testifying to him as he testifies to the people about God. And as he's being stoned, and he breathes out his last breath, he mutters a word, and that last word is, forgive these people, God, for what they're doing to me. How is that possible? That is only possible because the Spirit of God is there. The kingdom of God is a present reality in the early church. And even enemies become saints. And the most profound example of that actually would be the Apostle Paul. Uh, the person who was armed with letters approving, with joy probably in his heart, at the martyrdom of Stephen, he struck with blindness to signify that he is a blind man just like the last king of Israel, just like Samson before that until God miraculously opens up his eyes and commissions him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. How is that possible? Just as Jesus says, the power of the kingdom of God is here, and that power of the kingdom of God only flows through the Spirit of God. This is who we are. And as we follow the book of Acts, that pattern continues chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Chapter 13 is a really condensed version of the principles that I'm speaking about. So let me give you an example from chapter 13. People come together to pray. Of course, prayer is key to the life of the believer. So 
one of the great things um, is when we come together as a community simply to pray. As they were praying, they probably had no agenda. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas on a mission trip. So they're going to go on missions. They've been set apart. Who set them apart? The Holy Spirit. Who sends them? The Holy Spirit. Who empowers them? Well, in this passage, the Spirit of God. Who spreads the word through them? The Spirit of God. And at the end, they're filled with joy. Who fills them with joy? The Spirit of God. All of it is possible because of the reality of the kingdom of God. Then finally, what happens? God says, wait for the promised Holy Spirit, and then go. And where do they go? Well, if you look at the book of Acts as concentric circles, it's Jerusalem, the center of the circle, and there's a revival there. The revival becomes so big, they have to go to Samaria, and the Samaritans receive the word of God, and there's a revival there. It's got to get a little bit bigger. Judea, and there too, there's a revival. (laughs) The word of God is spreading, and by the end, Paul has reached Rome, and those concentric circles continue. And one day in the 1900s, it reached a place like South Korea, and it's still spreading, and it's still spreading. That's the principle of the power of the kingdom of God. Now, here's where it gets much more applicable for all of us. Uh, you saw the, the parallels between the Old Testament and New Testament, right? If you're following, I try to make that case. There is continuity. Kingship is in the Old Testament. It is consummated in the New Testament through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you saw the parallels between the Gospels and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, the Gospels and, excuse me, the book of Acts. That is to say, the, the explosive work of God um, in the Gospels has been replicated in the book of Acts. Here's where it gets uh, really exciting for us. Believe it or not, if we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the power of the kingdom of God is upon you as well. That means, and this is where it's mind-blowing, that means that all of you here who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are agents of the kingdom of God. That means that God wants to use you not only to bless your families, not only to bless your church, not only to bless the immediate community here in New York City, but to bless the world. And there is a missional emphasis then. I'm not going to speak on missions because I can go on that for a long time. But what I'm saying is that power of the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon all of us here as well. And believe it or not, those things which the apostles did, we can do too. Now that seems crazy. Why? Because since we're little boys and little girls, uh, we've been given a rationalistic framework. And because of that, we box God into our little boxes of rationality. But God breaks those boxes by the power of His Spirit and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. 
And what we have is the power of God's Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can do amazing things for the Lord in our lives right here and right now. That is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. That means by birthright, by our new birth, that birthright, we have been made princes and princesses. We have authority. We can bless this world as we go. And I believe that's one of the messages that God is really depositing in my heart and um, other people's hearts as well. This is the time where we're supposed to walk out in faith and be and do the things that God has called us to do. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, last year or so, uh, I've been reading a little bit on uh, Gordon Fee, and some of you guys came over to my house and we um, honored uh, the Professor Gordon Fee, really great guy. And one of the things that he jokes about is most evangelical circles do believe in the Trinity, but functionally speaking, their Trinity is a Father, Son, and the Holy Book. Um, and I think that characterizes a lot of Reformed communities. They love the Father, they you know, have a Christocentric hermeneutic, and therefore they love the Son, but they kind of minimize the work of the Holy Spirit, and they replace it with the Holy Book, the Bible, and they exegete it, they study it, they love it, they memorize it, they meditate upon it, which is a great thing. And he quips that because what we need is a Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that creates in us the power, the power to do the works of God, to be agents of the kingdom of God. Now, because, well, there's a lot of new folks here that I don't know, but I know Good News Church because you know, I've been with Good News for a while in the past. And as I was worshiping today, um, a thought came to me, which I think would be very helpful. Um, the idea of fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles. And um, I read about this topic a long, long time ago, uh, probably like six or seven years ago, uh, in the context of runners. Certain nations have uh, a lot of athletes with like slow twitch muscles, and certain places have athletes with fast twitch muscles. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, and I'm not super familiar, but it can be a good illustration. Um, those with slow twitch muscles uh, basically are really suited their physical bodies to run long distances, for example, things with endurance. So if you are a person in this room that has slow twitch muscles, you can probably run a marathon, right, and be successful at it. But if you have been created with fast twitch muscles, it'll be very difficult to run a marathon. But you can do like really slow, uh, really quick things with explosive power, uh, maybe like a, a linebacker running into uh, a running back and just knocking him down, right? Wow. Fast switch muscle or sprint would be a fast twist muscle. You know, in some ways, um, I think the way God has raised Good News Church, and I think Good News is an amazing, beautiful congregation, um, but there's a lot of people with slow twitch muscles, which is a beautiful thing because God calls us not to be, uh, it, uh, to, not to be faithful in, in the short run. We need to be faithful all the way to the end. Uh, just the fact that. Uh, 
Peter and Eunice are still, still leading worship. That's a beautiful thing. That's, that's, that's a slow-twitch muscle. It's being faithful for a decade, worshiping the Lord, right? It's people uh, serving God, being on missions, and continuing to be generous, pouring their hearts upon people. Those are slow-twitch things. Those are beautiful things. And God always honors faithfulness. So I would equate a slow-twitch muscle to faithfulness. And the best thing that we can be when it comes to God is faithful unto him, faithful even unto death. And we see the beauty of that in the life of Stephen. Stephen was a, a slow-twitch person as well in the book of Acts as he gave his life for God. So was the apostle Paul. He's saying, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And his death is almost at hand. He did not give up. He tenaciously held on to the things of God. He was faithful to the end. And I like to imagine in Hebrews chapter 13, when it says, Timothy, our brother, has been released from prison, I like to think that is the Timothy that we read about in the book of Acts and in First and Second Timothy, uh, Paul's right-hand man who became a bishop in the church at Ephesus, that at the end of his life, he was imprisoned, and yet when he got out, he was still faithful because he was holding on tenaciously to the things of God. But if we're going to be holistic, we also need this fast-twitch muscle. And if we are going to be whole, we have to come to the realization that we have the Spirit of God, and sometimes the Spirit of God in an instant calls us to do things. And oftentimes, I, I do believe that we hear these things and we don't do anything about it. Because oftentimes we say, oh, that can't really be God. But I would submit to you, oftentimes it is God. And he's telling you, do it. Take that step of faith. Go to that person and pray for that person. You, you might not know. It doesn't matter. Take a step of faith. And when that happens, we will see manifest the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God. And this is why in a very slow season, God coordinates a couple of fast-twitch people. God begins to coordinate a couple of people who know how to hear, how to obey, and a church can balloon, just like the book of Acts. So what do we need? We need the, the Spirit of God. And we do have the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is a reality. But that also means we can hear the voice of God and, and in an instant obey the Lord and take steps of faith. And I am extra bold in preaching this to Reformed communities. Why? Because there is a deep love for God's Word in this community. And there's a, a deep faithfulness to this community. And you are growing in understanding who God is. And someone like Pastor Sam, he is a wise minister uh, who's been tested and knows God's word and faithfully preaches God's word. So if the contours of your mind now are being uh, shaped and formed by the Word of God. What does that mean? We have the ability to take risks because we will be living within a biblical worldview. 
which means there is safety built into who we are to be risk-takers. So if you ask me, what does it mean to be a person who has faith? Well, it's very clear in the Bible. If you have faith, you will be a doer. That's what James says. Let's break it down in New York City. What does it mean to be a person who has faith? It simply means that you will take risks for God. You will take risks for God because you believe in the power of the kingdom of God. I think that's going to be one of the best ways that good news grows. That all of you become risk-takers. So think about it. There's, there is a disconnect in our minds sometimes. If there is a sick person, do you believe that you can, God can use you to heal that person? In our modern world, we don't think that. Hypothetically, yeah, I guess God can. He can do anything. But do you actually believe that God can heal that person? If you do, you will go there, you will pray for that person, and you will expect that person to be healed. And if we live in this tension of the already not yet, the kingdom of God has already broken in, but not yet, there will be success. Sometimes, you know, God will just give them grace to suffer well, but there will be that success. Do we believe in that? Do we take steps of faith because of that? And if that already is here, do you believe that when you go share the gospel with somebody that God has already prepared their hearts and they are ready to say, like the crowds, what must we do to be saved? Because God is working through His Spirit in their hearts. Do you believe in that? If you do, it's because the kingdom of God is a reality here. And do you believe in it when it comes to sanctification that God can break addictions through prayer? Do you think that God can break habitual sins and give us victory? If we believe that the kingdom of God is a present reality, of course He can. And we will put ourselves in the position, yes, I believe it and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be an, an agent of that kingdom. Does that mean that we can transform all of New York? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most encouraging things in the book of Acts is for two and a half years, Paul was in the third largest city in the world, Ephesus. And in two and a half years, he turned that province upside down. And it says in the book of Acts chapter 19, all of Asia heard the word of God. Asia back then is talking about Asia, Asia Minor, which is talking about all of Turkey. Paul was so successful in two and a half years without the internet, without mass communication, just at the lecture hall of Tyrannus with about 12 people that he met as he was going there. He didn't even really know them. And in two and a half years, he converted all of Asia. How is that possible? It is because the kingdom of God is a reality. And I'm here to remind you today that the kingdom of God is a reality for all of you as well. Now, you know, I, I believed this in this when I was younger. Then I kind of forgot about it, and then I believed in it again. I remember being 19 years old and saying, you know, I believe in this stuff. I really do. I pray for every sick person that I, that I saw, and to be honest, I saw very little success. I think in my early years, uh, only one person was semi-healed, 
and most of the people I prayed for got sicker. And I was like, what is going on? Um, and even jokingly, I, I prayed for Pastor Sam, and he didn't get any better. Um, but you know what? That happens. But if we truly believe, we will see success. It will happen. And it's beginning to happen more and more. And I'll give you a couple of stories, just to, not to boast, but to give encouragement to all of you. Um, I stopped to get gas on the way f- uh, from Long Island to New York City, and there was a guy with uh, a big cast on his right hand, and he was kind of like, kind of fumbling um, uh, on the cast register. And I felt God telling me, you know, I need to pray for this guy. So I said, hey, man, what's wrong with your hand? And he says, I tore some ligaments. I said, are you in pain? And he says, yeah, I'm in pain. I said, does it really hurt? Or it's like, you know, it doesn't hurt at all. He goes, oh, it really hurts, and I'm having trouble. I said, let me pray for you. I think God can heal you. And he's like, for real? And I said, yeah, I'm dead serious. I'm a minister, and I want to pray for you. And I said, bring your hand out. And I said, I'm going to lightly touch it. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to pray for you. I prayed for him. And, he's, and he says, and I said, how's you feel? How are you feeling? And he says, you know what? My whole hand is becoming really warm, and the pain is going away. I said, you know, once in a while, you've got to pray twice. So, because, you know, remember Jesus prayed for the guy twice. He saw, like, this blind guy, like, trees walking. And I said, let me pray for you again. So I prayed for him again. And he says, you know what? The pain is gone. And I said, you know, I just want, you know, I have no powers. I just want to say, Jesus loves you. And uh, he didn't know what to say, so he says, uh, Jesus loves you too. And uh, <laughs> I said, can I have my coffee? And I went home, right? Um, the night before that, there was a woman. I was getting a bagel, which I should not have been doing, because it was like 11 o'clock at night, and I was eating a bagel with a friend. And there was a woman with a cane that walked in, and I was like, all right. My friend's like, let's pray for her. It's okay, let's pray for her. So we prayed for her, and she said she had shooting pain on her leg. We prayed for her, and all of a sudden, all of her pain went away. I'm not even kidding. And she walked home uh, completely happy. I'll give you another story. I was uh, on a Skype call with a friend, um, and he was in Seoul. And I can actually document this because she sent me an email uh, thanking me. And um, she's like, oh, yeah, this, this is my friend Lily. Um, and she is uh, an illustrator, and she illustrates these comics. And I said, like, that's cool. And she's like, oh, yeah, I feel a little sick today. I don't even know how we got to that. And I said, you know what? This is going to sound a little weird, but you know, you know, I can pray for you over Skype, right? And I prayed for her. She had, um, uh, I forgot what that's called, acid reflux. And so she was not feeling good that day. So I said, uh, let me pray for you. I did one of those TV evangelist things. I'm going to put my hand in front of the Skype screen. <laughs> so all she saw was my hand. And I said, make believe I'm touching, uh, touching you. And I'm going to just pray for you. Ten-second prayer. Lord, heal her um, of her acid reflux. And then we, I just had my uh, conference call with my friend. We said goodbye. And I, ten minutes later, I get an, an email. Lily is blown away. Um, she's, like, sweating profusely now right? And all of her acid reflux is gone. And on top of it, she had a sore throat. Her throat doesn't hurt anymore, too. How is that possible? It is the reality of the kingdom of God. It's happening all over the place. How about when people, and I just don't, I don't want to just emphasize that, how about when people become ridiculously generous? And there are stories of people giving away tons and tons and tons of money for Christian work. That, too, reflects the reality of the kingdom of God, because when the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God come, what happens? Generosity. 
Generosity takes place. And this is why Barnabas, the son of encouragement, sold his field and gave it to the apostles' feet. How was he able to do that? Because the Spirit of God is also the spirit of generosity. Or how is it possible, right, that many people are coming to the Lord? It's possible because the Spirit of God is convicting of their sins and they're opening their eyes to a wonderful Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's possible because of the reality of the kingdom of God. And I do believe that God wants all churches in New York City to be agents of the kingdom. All you need to do is two things. You need to wait and go. Wait and go. Wait upon God. Ask him to fill you more and more with his spirit. This is very biblical. Right? It says in Ephesians chapter 5, 18, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And not to be too grammatical here, but it's a passive imperative, which means it's an imperative. We have to do it. It's passive, which means it can only be done unto us. We need to wait. And it's a continual filling. God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. And when you are filled with the spirit, you are filled with the power of the kingdom to do the work of the kingdom. And then we go. And what does it mean to go? It means to take risks. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? I'll tell you what the worst thing that can happen to you. Social awkwardness. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. But you know what? It is an honor to be a fool for Christ. So who cares if there is social awkwardness? What's the upside? God can use you as an agent of the kingdom and deliver a person. Give that person freedom. Give that person joy. Give that person peace. Give that person life eternal. That's exciting. That is what God, I believe, is calling us to do. This is precisely why in Acts chapter 1, it's not like go. It's first wait. Receive power. We need to receive that power. And then go. I'll, get, I'll tell you a little story, and this is when I probably embarrassed, embarrassed Caleb a little bit. I prayed for his wrestling coach because he couldn't really move his arm. And uh, I said, hey, coach, come over here. Uh, so what happened to your arm, man? And uh, he said, I, I tore some stuff, and I prayed for him. And he thanked me. Nothing really happened. Then I said, you know, coach, let me, let me try it again. So I prayed for him again, and nothing really happened. It was a little awkward. So what did I say? Hey, you're a nice guy. You're a good guy. Thanks. I gave him a hug. What's the worst that can happen? But what if God healed that person? We're called to be agents of God's kingdom. I believe that. And I believe that God is, God's spirit is working within um, Good News Church. And it was just confirmed in a funny way. Um, Alicia, is she in the room here? Well, she was. She's going to be leading a tour of New Amsterdam. I actually preached on New Amsterdam last week. Out of all the, oh, there you are, right there. Yeah. <laughs> Out of all the things I could preach on, I preached a little sermon uh, at, uh, at City Grace Church, a CRC church, the last Dutch Reformed Church in New York City, kind of a beachhead mission, 
The last one, even though the Dutch founded New York City, it was New Amsterdam, right? Uh, Caleb over there goes to collegiate, the oldest school in America, 1632, started by the Dutch from the classes of not New Amsterdam, Amsterdam from the Netherlands, chartered. There's something going on. There's something going on. Promises that have been deposited to the Dutch Reformed Church. And the irony is it's going to be fulfilled by the non-Dutch. People like Alicia. That's exciting. God's spirit is really moving and working. Now, this is what I think we ought to do. You know, the Bible says very clearly that if we seek, ask, and knock, we will find, God will open the door, and he will answer us. And the illustration that um, Jesus gives, not a very flattering one, uh, but the illustration that he gives nevertheless, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, he's basically saying, you guys are horrible parents, but even then you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those he asks? Okay? Now, this is what I, I want to do. And, you know, I know this is a good Reformed church, and we never have altar calls. So, you know, we can have an altar call, but, you know, for the sake of time, uh, what we can do instead is have a silent altar call in your heart. And I'll be happy to pray for you afterwards. I, I can stick around. Um, but this is what I think we can do. I want to go into a time of prayer, five, ten minutes. Okay? And those in this room, if this teaching has resonated in your heart, I want you to say, Lord, I believe intellectually, and I believe in my heart that the kingdom of God is a reality, that you have given me your Holy Spirit, and I want to be a person who is filled, number one, filled with your Holy Spirit, and number two, and it has to be one and two. It can't just be one. All right? It's got to be the same. I will take risks for you to be an agent of the kingdom of God. If that reflects you, then I, I, I want to pray for you. Right? So uh, I want to pray for those people who actually believe in that. And um, in fact, let's, let's have a look at mini altar call. So anyone who wants to come up, I will just stay up here. You know, I won't, I'll just pray for you up here. And the reason why I say that is uh, I was reading through um, Samuel. First Samuel is a very, very interesting book. First Samuel um, is, a, is an interesting juxtaposition between Hannah and how she raised Samuel with the priest Eli and how he raised his kids. So as you know, Eli's sons were wretched, and God killed them because they were unrighteous priests, uh, whereas Samuel was completely righteous. In fact, the only little boy who heard the voice of God because the word of God was rare in those days, according to, to Samuel. And what really particularly struck me is Hannah. Uh, Hannah uh, had uh, no children. She was barren, and she would pour out her heart to God and God heard her prayer and gave Samuel. And imagine a mother 
who could not have a child, finally gives that child, probably doting on that child, loving that child. But what does Hannah do? She honors God. And what, you know what she does? She gives Samuel right back to God. Let him be weaned. The husband says, okay. And she gives him back to God, and he serves with Eli the priest. Can you believe that? A barren woman finally has a child, and she gives that child back to God. You know what that means? She honored God. What was the problem with Eli? Eli did not know how to honor God. He dishonored God. What did the sons of Eli do? They dishonored God. What did Samuel do? He honored God. And this is exactly why I believe by the time you get to chapter 5 or chapter 6 is that Samuel grew in favor with God and man because God honors those who honor him. Now, why do I give you that? Because when we come up and say, Lord, I want to take a stand for you, and I want to be a risk taker for you and be filled, I think we honor God. And whenever we honor God, that's the first step to God really honoring us. And we see that right in the book of Acts. Stephen is standing on this earthly court testifying that God does not dwell in edifice made with human hands. And what is God doing in the heavenly court? He's not sitting at the right hand of God, as the Apostle Creed says. The only time in the Bible he is not sitting is in Acts. He is standing because he is honoring Stephen, interceding for him in the heavenly courts. So I want Good News Church to be a church who stands for God. So with that said, Peter, you think you can play a little music in the background? I thought Peter did a really cool job with the doxology. That was like super cool. And uh, yeah, I just want to invite you guys, anyone who wants, uh, and you know, this is, you know, I, I don't want to put any pressure but if, you, if God has touched you uh, to say, Lord, I just want to be filled, and I want to take risks for you, I want to pray for you. So you come on up, and just you can stand over here, and uh, I'll just pray for you guys, and you guys can sit down. I already checked with Fred that, you know, we won't go too long, <laughs> because I think we have it until like well, 1 o'clock or 1.30, so it'll be like 10 minutes or so. But I think it's, you know, uh, a, a great thing when we, Receive prayer and ask God and tell God, Lord, I want to I stand for you. I want to I really be a blessing in this world. So why don't we um, close our eyes uh, for some prayer.